Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So welcome along to Enter Sad Men, the heaviest podcast out on the airwaves. This is episode 11. My name's Steve. Mark and Rich are ready to go. Coiled springs as ever, ready to embark on the next leg of our epic adventure to compile the ultimate hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. That's the purpose of the exercise. We select three albums a week, every week, see how good they are. The idea is we create a league table of finest albums from what we perceive to be heavy metal and hard rock's golden age, 1970 to 1995, a 25-year period. And we recovered from last week's nonsense, recovered so well, in fact, that in the interim period, we've actually done a special uh, with Brian Tatler from Diamond Head, and you will find out why very shortly. So, yeah, last week was nuts. Um, go check it out. You can find it on um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean. There's links to it from our website, entersadmen.co.uk, Twitter feed at, at entersadmen, um, and we're on Facebook as well. So, yeah, last week was was pretty surreal, boys, wasn't it? And um, someone's going to have to explain it because it, it was just odd, wasn't it, in very many ways. Okay, so last week, it was. It was bizarre. Last week, we had the bright idea, which actually turned out to be not quite so bright as we thought, of taking an album from a any list, any published list of the top 100 or more hard rock and heavy metal albums. We had to each choose an album we had never heard before. The others could have heard it, but whoever chose it couldn't have heard it. And what we ended up with was possibly the most bizarre concoction of albums it's ever been my pleasure displeasure i have no idea uh, to review which were tools undertow jethro tull's aqualung which is always a pleasure for me and the the the, the frankly uh schizophrenic caius blues for the red sun which uh currently um well i mean I, i'll assume that you're all devotees and you've all listened to it so it's currently propping up the hall of fame uh that one but yeah it was a richard it was just a bit odd wasn't it yes i think it's good <laughs> that we are challenging ourselves because part of this for us all is to explore new things it will be oh so easy for us to forever go back to our top 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 favourite albums and then gush about how wonderful they are. Um, The point of this podcast is to find those albums between around 1970-ish and 1995-ish and see whether they deserve to go in. In that sense, we completely met the brief. This week we thought... Right after that hardship, let's go. Let's go back to safer waters, and we decided we'd have a look at one of the great years in rock, which so happens to be forty years ago. We would mark um, the fortieth anniversary of nineteen eighty, or more specifically, um, the fortieth anniversary of what British rock was like in nineteen eighty. So we've all picked, um, we've all picked an, a, a British album from that year. Well, I'm, because we did this in chronological order, I should be going first. So you boys want to talk through your choices for uh, for episode 11? It was actually quite an easy choice for me uh, because much as I love a great many of the rock and heavy metal albums that came out in 1980, and I do, I like you know most of them, 
uh, love some of them, like most of them. In the end, everything in the new wave of British heavy metal starts and finishes for me with Diamond Head. So I chose their debut album, which was Lightning to the Nations. It's 1980. I was 14. One album just stood out um, when I when I think back to that year. It's uh, Motorhead and it's Ace of Spades. Um, and on the other side of this, we will kick off with Whitesnake and Ready and Willing. So uh, it's 1980. The new wave of British heavy metal is well underway. Uh, as Steve's already outlined, you know, we've had debut albums from um, Iron Maiden. Uh, we've had Saxon's second album, Wheels of Steel. Um, Def Leppard, On Through the Night, released uh, in that year as well. Um, but what we also had is White Snakes, Ready and Willing. Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. And um, interesting, isn't it? In the in a year where you know the new wave of British heavy metal was uh, was making waves, this isn't. I mean, this is this is classic David Coverdale, who's been around for donkey's years, and this is White Snake, early White Snake, released in May 1980, and yeah, it's a very very different sound to some of the stuff that was coming out in that year. And I'm guessing, boys, you remember it well. I would imagine it was it was it was a big album at the time, Mark, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was, and some absolutely corking tracks on it rich were you a fan oh massively obviously attracted to it by by four for your loving uh, but then what a rest of an album to discover so um d- d- just to nuts and bolts as we say third studio album after i think we'll be generous and say there were, there were mixed bags the first two trouble and love hunter i mean i love for example take me with you which kicks off trouble but it also had Day Tripper on, one of the worst covers of all time. Um, and Love Hunter, you've just got to own for the album sleeve alone. Don't take my word for it. Go Google images and um, just be careful what comes back. And this was um, the key thing about this album is that it was um, Love Hunter was Dave Dowell's last outing on drums for White Stang. And we, we think of drums as t- drummers as timekeepers. I know I do. Rich gets very cross because he's a drummer. This was now big news because Ian Pace came back into the fold, which means that we had half of the White Snake six-piece um, had a purple history with Coverdale there, John Lord on piano, and now Ian Pace on drums. They called him the governor. Um, even Bernie Marsden did it. He was one of the, the three M's who made up the rest of the band, Marsden, Moody and Murray. But they loved that Pace was the governor, and they looked to him for 
leadership almost um, from behind the sticks, coupled with the fact that on production, they, they were in the ever so safe hands of Martin Birch, who we've talked about many times before. So whatever we think of Trouble and Love Hunter, this was, I mean, David Coverdale was, was a big name because of his purple pedigree, but this was Whitesnake as the band, their breakthrough moment. Um, it was a band of big names, big reputations, but they did have plenty to prove. Well, they struck gold with this one. They did. It's a great, great album. Um, it's not perfect. It's not perfect, but it has got some perfect songs on it. It just locks. It's locked in there. I mean, I haven't played. I haven't played it for probably a couple of years, but uh, um, the brain clicked in as soon as I stuck it on. I recalled every lyric, every fill. It's um, yeah. I, it, it, it's a fantastic, fantastic album. Love it. So Ready and Willing kicks off with, well, the masterpiece that is Fall for Your Loving. I say masterpiece, it's, and it is, I've just heard it too often, you know. It is astonishing. And we're going to come to another one of these later, which is Ace of Spades. They are classics by any measure. They are classics, but I have just heard it too often. That's the bottom line. Um, and I love it. There's, there's, musically, there is nothing wrong with it at all. The story behind it is brilliant. I, I, I've talked in the podcast before about the fact that there was a, a period back in 82, 81, 82, where there were only three albums rotating on my turntable. One was Rainbows Rising, one was UFOs Strangers in the Night, and the other one was White Snakes Live in the Heart of the City. And this um, is this opens, um, well, it doesn't open the, the album, it opens, I think, side two of the album. And... That was my introduction, really. Um, I mean, I've got, I, I did have the, 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 I had this album, I had the studio album, but Live in the Heart of City brought Fool for Your Loving to life for me. So it kind of has, a, it has a different place in my, in my kind of affection, I suppose. It's not just another song that I've overheard. I'm smiling, actually, yeah, back, back to what you're saying about Mr. Pace and, and how it, his, his drumming carries this whole song. I think if you go back to this song and, again, try and put yourself in listening to it for that first time, you listen to the way that it's arranged, the backing vocals, the oohs. Um, actually, it, it's, um, as you say, it, it's been damaged by overplaying to some, including you. I don't think it's the best track on the album, never have. Um, but it's a great start. It's a great start to an album. It's a fantastic track. And for, for anyone out there who's, who's spotted that it's appeared also on Slip of the Tongue from 1989, don't go there. This is this is full for your loving. It's a bluesy song, and this is how you hear it. I th was it Steve Vai on guitar on, on, the, on the remake? I can't remember, but even Coverdale said it shouldn't have been done. Well, let's be honest, Steve. You know, Coverdale has form for this, doesn't he? Mm. You know, he, he took um, a perfectly good song, uh, Here I Go Again, um, which was on Saints and Sinners. Perfectly decent, really good, probably the, the strongest song on what was an otherwise a fairly mediocre or average album. Um, and then he has to reinvent it. So why? Why what you know, why do that? Um, this is about as perfect as you're gonna get. So yeah, I, I I've never understood that with, with David Coverdale. Why take something from your past and try to make it better because actually the, the the song is the song is the song you know it's it was it was 
of its time and of its place. Absolutely. And so we, we meander smoothly into Sweet Talker, second track on the album, released as a single in the US, um, but not over here, not, to no great acclaim. I get that. I don't. I, I don't see it being massive over there. I, I was, would Coverdale have been massive in America because of his purple connection? Probably not. I don't know. You know, like the first track. I mean, if this was the first time I was listening to this album, I, I think you know this is brilliant. It's great, and it is. A, it's a happy rocker. Classic Coverdale is gratuitously womanizing, which is a theme that just emerges throughout this. That's like a lady, and it's got it's got one of you know two or three humding a. John Lord keyboard solos in there, but do you know what this track comes to comes to life live? Sweet Talker. It's um, it is very much a live track, which I don't think fe- I don't think it features now in their set, um, but it, it was a staple of their set back in the early eighties, and it's got so much energy live. Although, frankly, the lyrics you just you would never get away with now. I mean, there's some there's some stuff on here that in the current climate. Um, you know, we're recording this in June 2020 um, in the middle of Black Lives Matter. You know, there's some stuff in here that you probably wouldn't want to be unearthing in public anytime soon. But, yeah, it's of its time. And, it's you know, you, know, you can't tear down the monuments of the past just because they don't fit the f- fit today. So, um, yeah, it's um, I-, I love this song. I think it's um, it's got it's got that kind of signature John Lord piano Hammond piano um and you know Ian Pace talk about Ian Pace being the governor Ian Pace we've talked about Ian Pace when we talk about Machine Head Richard weren't we and the fact that he is such a good you know technically gifted drummer but for me I think Mickey Moody defines White Snake White Snake sound almost uh, no just as much as as any other member that slide blues guitar I like, I like this track. I do like it. I think, actually, if you really focus on Coverdale's voice in this, it's it's brilliant singing. It, it, it's it, Again, it's very bluesy, soulful. Yeah, I, I, I love his singing in this song. Um, and so to the title track, Ready and Willing. Um, I mean, the groove in this is... is it's just a, you don't headbang to this, do you? You dance to it. It's um, you could take this to a disco. Earth, Wind, and Fire couldn't have done this any better. It's just it, it's just a tapper. I again, and without wishing to always hark back to the live album, but Ready and Willing became um, their kind of Wheels of Steel live, didn't it? Where that th- this was the this was the song that was all about the audience participation and the sing back and. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's just got a tremendous um, groove going on, and it and it's that light and shade with Coverdale's vocals as well. He knows when to wind it back, um, which he does brilliantly on the really monster tracks on this album as well. Actually, Coverdale's voice is just sugar in it. I mean, it is syrup. Yeah, it is. Uh, and White Snake made him a star. Yeah, he he, he was he was. Well known, he was a celebrity. He was, a, he was, um, yeah, he was the lead singer of Deep Purple. That brings with it automatically a certain level of recognition. But I think, I think White Snake gave him the vehicle to really show what he could do. Are we in agreement? This is their finest album. It's a big call. Mm. I, yeah, is it their finest album musically? 
well, you're, you're only ever going to be comparing it with 1987, aren't you? Musically, I think this is their finest album, but obviously it's not their biggest album, is it? But they, I, I think this is pure White Snake. If you want the essence of what White Snake was as a band, this album is it. I mean, but having said that, I have equal affection for Love Hunter. I think it's their it's their finest because again we go back to how we have talked about, for example, Deep Purple and during Machine Head. I think with Ian Pace's arrival, this this album's got the best balance across all of the musicians in it. No one's trying to to dominate. Everyone's got the space to to play. Um, I think the arrival of Pace, obviously with John Lord there as well, made perhaps made Coverdale behave himself a bit. I don't know. And so he didn't he didn't go over the top. So I think in terms of uh, the balance, it, it, it is their it's their best album. Yeah, I'll get along with that. I think Coverdale's control is, um, well, it's, it's awesome. Um, and that, but track four now, and this is one that carry a load. You almost thought it was it was the filler on side one, but re- revisiting it, there's so much that goes on here that I'm, it just looks like a little chugger. But there are so many great little moments of it that you just pick up on. There's a little pause coming into the lyric, put a little love in your heart. The harmonies um, are just so on point. And that's not the only segue or, or bridge on this track, which listen to it again if you don't believe me and listen to it closely. It's just so brilliantly constructed. Even that messy kind of drum bass exit um, is a treat. Um, seriously underrated, in my view, by me. Um, and, and, I've, and I've just come to appreciate it's a big track. It's a bigger track than I gave it credit for. For my part, what I've come to realise over the years is that a lot of the stuff that I was listening to at this point in my life, I wasn't really ready to listen to because what I wanted was fall for your loving 10 times. So carry your load comes on and then the next track comes on, which I think we'll probably spend a bit of time talking about. And I'm going, well, that's, yeah, it's not full. That's not fast enough. It's not fast enough. So I think I kind of largely ignored this album when I was 15, which is when it came out and when I bought it. Um, and I reconnected with it much later on and came to fully appreciate what it offered. Because, A, you've got, I think, it was that Marsden doing the solo in, in, in Carrier Load. So you've got that that sort of amazing guitar sound in there. But but actually, you know what? The best instrument in this is Coverdale. His voice is amazing. Yeah, he's warming up for what's to come. Really good, really great track. Rich, do you enjoy it as much as we do? The whole album is is brilliantly paced, I th- and I think when you listen to it end to end, as as we do on these, and encouraging anyone to listen to this stuff end to end, I I think the order of the tracks is brilliant, um, and particularly as you say, the perfect lead into um, this last track on side one, which is uh, which is Blind Man, and uh, which is I don't know, well I don't know where <laughs> I'm getting hints that. You guys like it too, but this this is just an absolute classic. Absolute classic. First time I heard this, I thought, oh my God. The way it starts, the way it builds, um, the atmosphere of it, it's brilliant. It absolutely is. And this is why this is why you have this is why vinyl was invented, so that you can have a sign-off track on side one that's as good as this. 
especially when you think about what's going to open up side two. That's why they're not tracks five and six. They're the last track on side one and the first track on side two. And they are there for a reason. Yeah, in, in my humble opinion, one of the great modern blues songs. I don't think that's over-egging it, is it? It just meanders so beautifully. I mean, with purpose, but just it's effortless. And Coverdale is effortless in it. And, you know, going into the big, the, the towering finish. He's, he's never short of emotion in his voice anyway, but, we, you know, you can really feel the melancholy in this. It's, oh, it's, it's a drift, beautiful drift, liquid gold. For a personality so big and so brash and so vibrant and so larger than life, his ability to wind it back and essentially sing over the melody is amazing. And I think he, I think we all probably knew, didn't we, when he, when he was with Deep Purple, that yeah, the boy could sing. He had a set of pipes on him, but given free reign to create his own vehicle and to to write and record the stuff that he really wanted to to write and record. I think, I think what you hear here is Coverdale at his very best. Yeah, with with complete confidence in the band behind him complete confidence in the compositions that they'd come up with, complete confidence in them as a unit to to deliver something that was powerful without being overblown and overstated. I think it's an amazing piece of music. I just get goosebumps every time I hear it, especially that finish, that sort of sign-off chorus. Um, it just takes me to a place, and it's, and it's a really happy place. You know, It's just a mellow place where I've been before. Happy days. It's probably worth... Coming back to Martin Birch here, though, isn't it, and the production, because I would not want this track produced or sounding any other way. So this is 40 years old, and the production of this track is absolutely perfect. Yeah, it's a scale above the production on the rest of the album, actually, I think. And and Martin Birch was not known as the headmaster for nothing. I mean, I, I suspect all of these musicians... Coverdale included, were coached to within an inch of their lives to get this. The, the other bit that, we, that you almost miss because the song itself is so colossal is the dexterity and the versatility of John Lord. Yeah, he, he's reinventing that piano sound throughout this. It, it kind of floats and it moves and it's... Yeah, and it it's comes to the front and it goes to the back. It's just and a lot of that is production. A lot of it is production, but it's also in his playing. Um, and so we go into side two and kicks off with "Ain't Gonna Cry No More." Yeah, we've got um, our regular listeners will know that the, the origins of this is a sad night, and we have we meet every every year for a sad night, and we have a theme, and we always have themes. And the one that we didn't do this time, one of the themes was um, Richard had put up, was um, side two track one, and we had to run through a list of our favourite side two track ones. This just went down top of any list because it's um, it's just awesome, awesome. Kicking off with Coverdale jamming against an acoustic guitar, you get a little spot of tambourine. It's almost like we're busking at church. Then John Lord. It's, it's all about the, the, the judgment of the, of the writing of the track. So he joins in with an upbeat bit of ivory tinkling and it just meanders again beautifully and then bang, two minutes in, crunch, and we're off and running and it's a um, wonderfully constructed piece of music. That, that piano 
um, reminds me a lot of Super Tramp in this area. Yeah, you listen to Breakfast in America, and and there's a lot of that kind of organ, organy, pan pipey uh, piano on on a, a lot of that album as well. Yeah, it's, it's, that whole track two side one. The, the point of that that track was it was placed to make you turn the record over and start the other side, um, and this always did it for me. I couldn't. I couldn't ever just play side one of this album because, yeah, I've, well, it sounds like you're in agreement. I mean, the, the, these 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 two tracks, Blind Man, and and this one are the the best tracks on the album for me. Permission to be an old man, sir. Th- this is the problem with CDs and Spotify. <laughs> it really is. I mean, you know, Spotify is wonderful in all sorts of ways because you, know, you get access to just anything, virtually everything that's ever that ever been recorded. But what you don't get from a CD and what you don't get from Spotify is that that point at which you go over and you you grab the piece of vinyl by the edges, and we all learn to do it. You flip it on your fingers. And it goes straight back down again, and and you put the needle on, and there's there's that tactile thing and that anticipation, and and albums were constructed. You're right, Steve. Albums were constructed to meet the challenge of vinyl, and I think yeah, I think I think I, I not really. I'm going to sound like an old man, but I think I think the kids of today are missing out on their music experience. Well, also, of course, I mean, album covers like Love Hunter and that, you know, you, you want to see it on a big on a big 33, don't you? Not on a fiddly little CD. You need its true glory. That, yeah, a, a, along with uh, Love Drive. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Which is the first time probably I'd ever seen a naked breast, ever. <laughs> but but there's But it's that whole thing, isn't it? It's not just about the vinyl. It's about the album, the album cover, the sleeve, the sleeve notes, the liner, the, the 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 the. And if you're Richard, the several hundred pieces of plastic that sit between the record and the cover, all of that stuff going on. Um, and and if you're me, none. <laughs> he just goes back yeah. in, the, back <laughs> in the suit. I'll leave it lying against the radiator to warm. Yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there was that albums like this made it a joy to listen to vinyl. The song almost becomes gospely at the end, doesn't it? Because again, with a, a, kind of a fantastic start, then it then it goes that a big, big rocky middle bit, and then and then this lovely, gentle sort of almost I don't know fade at this last part of it. But it is gospel, isn't it? Because it, it it's that whole gospel kind of vibe of of taking control and being i think it's brilliant i think it's brilliantly constructed and it does you're right it sounds like a gospel choir and i I do think though that yeah by the time we get to the end of that we've we've had the best of the album personally yeah yeah i get i've got one gem up my sleeve but i mean it's 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 probably not love man which is um which we're listening to next which is a book tapper and what i like about love man is um this is David is pervious, isn't it? Judging by the opening lyrics, I spent close on 16 years watching your pretty flower grow. Little girl, little girl, now tell me everything you know. I mean, you know, I'm asking questions of a man who's, um, she's not even 16. 
But uh, Heartbreaker, Lawbreaker, you sell it what it is. But um, this is David. It's best. Slide guitar, lovely beat. Nothing to dislike about the track. But, well, yeah, kind of after Frank, the Lord Mayor's show. Yeah, it is a bit. And, frankly, if you're going to be pervy, then you need to be pervy to a slide guitar. Yeah. yeah. And there is nothing dirtier than a slide guitar. I could never sing I'm a hoochie-coochie man with a straight face. Dave could sing anything. He could sing the phone book. And, and he does. Just to get an idea of just how pervy this is, right, where does this sit on the all-night-long kind of, you know, scale? Discuss. <laughs> is it slightly more kind of despicable than all-night-long or less despicable than all-night-long? I just, I'm interested. I think the, uh, you know, I mean, there were a lot of songs like this at the time, weren't they? We'll probably talk about uh, Motehead's Jailbait. It, it's not great, is it? But I, but I uh, think back to 1980, I, would, I was fine with this. I mean, it's, it's bad, isn't it? But Yeah, but, but in 1980, Richard, a girl of 16 was an older woman. So, you know, for you. So that was all right. Well, maybe Coverdale wrote this as a teenager and not a 30-year-old man or whatever he was at the time. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Let's go with that. Yeah, it's, it's probably best not to dig too deep, is it? Yeah. Unfortunate euphemism, Steve, but let's push on. Now, Black and Blue, well, what's interesting about Black and Blue, I find, um, is the the impression, I don't know whether it's, I presume it's recorded in a studio, I guess, but the, the impression that they're playing it at some kind of small-time honky-tonk venue in front of a couple of dozen folk who are having a good time. And the only reason I find that interesting, I don't even know if that's true or not, but that's the backing I'm getting from from what's going on in the track. And the only reason I find that interesting is because, to my mind, that is exactly where you should be seeing a band like Whitesnake. Now, I know they're colossal and massive and huge, but we've seen them, Mark. We saw them. Do you remember when we saw them in 86, Christmas 86, at the back of... I mean, and I mean the back. I mean, we weren't even in Wembley. We were in fucking Brent. I mean, we were that far back. I could hear you whisper. That's how far back we were. And and they were doing, and obviously it was their 1987 tour, I'm guessing, wasn't it? Would have been, that was released the following year, so we knew what was coming. And I've got a feeling they only played one track, and they would have played Fool for Your Love, and I'm sure, from this album. And then we saw them again at Donington. They hardly touched it. We saw them again at the famous Bournemouth International Centre, um, the venue of legends, and they hardly touched this album. And they kind of reached the point where they just kind of almost, you know, wiped this from their set list, this and other albums of this time. And part of me thinks, well, that's ludicrous because there's such gems on it. But part of me also thinks, and like I'm listening to Black and Blue now, that in actual fact... Most of this stuff wouldn't translate to massive venues. You know, this is this is low-key, small-town bluesy stuff, and um, this is weather at the best, not uh, Pat Wembley, where you can barely see the bloke and he's just singing the big hits. Anyway, rant over. The one, the one problem I have with black and blue, <laughs> in a, this is in a funny way, you got, yeah, you've got the pub atmosphere. It, I mean, it, it, this is Whitesnake, Do Chas and Dave. You know, you've got you, you've, it could be Chas Hodges on the piano, not John Lord. You know, it it's fine, it's good fun, but it will always remind me of Chas and Dave. That that, that would be a low point, wouldn't it? David Coverdale doing Rabbit. <laughs> oh, he'd make it. He'd make it work. Contrary to what 
you boys are saying. They, there was one more ace up their sleeve, which is She's a Woman, the last track. And I think it's I think it's one of the album highlights. I really do. I think it contains, as I said earlier, the best solo on the album. I mean, it's not by a guitarist. It's from John Lord. With an with a just a brilliant journey around the organ. Incidentally, what's in no, no solos in this on this album are long. They're all really well judged, really nice and tight and compact on the guitars as well. In fact, the keyboards almost gets a little bit more freedom to um to uh, do his shit, as they say in the trade, um than than the six stringers. So and Lord solo in this is brilliant. I just um I love the lyrics. I love the lyrics and how they roll out. She ain't black, but she got soul. She ain't young, she ain't old. She shine like silver, burn like gold, because she's a woman. It's, it's just the way it rolls out and the way he delivers it. Yeah, and I think it's a really, really good finishing track. No, it doesn't. Uh, no, not for me. I, I think I think it's a mess, actually. I like it. I think it's that they, I sense they needed, they wanted to go out with something quick and a good ending. They wanted some something more up tempo, and uh, he obviously was uh, allowed to uh, stretch his lungs, wasn't he? On this, this finish, the finish of this track is electric. It could it could go on and on. I think it's brilliant, and you think they're stopping, and they come back for more, and it's you know I'm going back in again, and oh, I just think it's the perfect end to an album. I really do. I just think it's. Probably pretty much Coverdale at its finest, and therefore White Snake at their finest. I think the mix of the band was spot on. The idea behind what they did was brilliant, um, and it doesn't feel like a metal album. Of course, it doesn't. It just feels like a really, really good piece of rock that you just listen to. You can listen to it time and time again, and you'd feel good at the end of it. Amen. So there we go. Uh, highs and lows, Richard. Yeah, I'm a blind, blind man for me. Um, was uh, my yeah, my my high point definitely, and then yeah, ain't no pleasing you probably the low point. Oh no, sorry, sorry, um, black and blue. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you're Nadir. Um, well, I don't think there's a Nadir, is there? I mean, Love Man is is yeah. wrong on all on so many levels. Not just <laughs> I mean, not not just from you know forty years distance, but but it's just it. it just there's there's an odor filler on it yeah. for me. Yeah, love man, love man for me as well. But all in all, been a good listen. That is White Snake's third full album, Ready and Willing, Done and Dusted. Uh, it's time to move on. And so we fast forward from May 1980 to October 1980 uh, for the second of our Nobum albums which is Mark's Choice, and it's the debut album by dear old Diamond Head uh, and uh, their album Lightning to the Nations. So, Mark, why this album? Opening album sleeve notes. There are all sorts of reasons why this album, uh, to be honest. The primary reason is that Diamond Head in 1979, 1980, were leading a charge, I think, for the new wave of British heavy metal. They were groundbreaking. They were ahead of their time. They were, um, I think they had that quality that all kids have. They had no fear. So nothing was off limits for them. They would write whatever they wanted to write. And they had um, this amazingly potent 
songwriting mix of Brian Tatler and Sean Harris. And they came up, I think, with with just some of the greatest rock songs that it is possible for anybody to listen to. And yeah, entire albums, yeah, many, many albums worth. And um, I mean, it's worth saying, isn't it, that uh, now that um, we have a slight advantage here because uh, when we decided that we were going to do 1980 and I chose uh, Diamond Head, I also took it into my crazy head to see whether Brian Tatler would come and do an interview for us. And um, I was quite surprised when he said he would. Um, so, you know, um, there was a special edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast coming, which features us in conversation with Brian Tatler. And he talks all about you know, how they recorded Lightning to the Nations, about some of the tracks on it. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's a, an amazing insight into what it was like to be at the spearhead of the new wave of British heavy metal at the time. And I think what the conversation for me reinforced is the fact that Diamond had shaped so much of what would follow. And they did it with songs that were, they weren't just, you know, the, the kind of the, the bludgeon that, you know, we came to know and love with Motorhead. They weren't the kind of high attack of, uh, the relentless high attack of Iron Maiden, which we've also, you know, came to know and love, and I, I love, you know, all of those albums, you know, in equal measure. What Diamond Head did was they wrote songs that demonstrated it was possible to be cutting edge heavy rock with melody and with panache and with style, and I think Lightning to the Nations has that in spades throughout there is for me personally there is not a single duff track on this album it's only seven tracks long it it was recorded in one week at the old smithy studio in worcester it was a car crash in all sorts of ways in in terms of how they got to record it the deal that they'd struck in order to record it how that then played out for them later on in their career as they tried to kind of establish a foothold in the rock scene, not just in this country, but also worldwide. Um, you know, there were a lot of lessons, I think, that the band learned, certainly a lot of lessons um, that their management should have learned, but maybe didn't. Um, and they should have been so much bigger than they actually turned out to be. But what they have left... And the band's still touring, still thriving, still making fantastic music. If you haven't checked out The Coffin Train, you should, because it's amazing. Um, but what what that band, what that lineup left over three albums, this one, Borrowed Time and Canterbury, is just the most amazing legacy of heavy metal and hard rock fused with these amazing harmonies and melodies that just took the genre in a different direction proved that you could do it in a sophisticated way and at the same time gave permission for bands like Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer uh, and Megadeth to become as big as they were. They were possibly the most influential, for me, they were possibly the most influential band in heavy metal full stop. Well, I, I mean, I echo everything you say, obviously. The first time that I came across Diamond Ed was obviously courtesy of you, my guru, in 1984, when you played me um, Call Me of Borrow Time. And I know that. I know that was the first track because it went straight onto a compilation tape 
and, and then we went through and moved on, obviously. And, I, and I'm sure after you'd have played me Am I Evil, I would have said, you know, why, why, why wasn't this band big? And I've been scratching my brain for 40 years, well, 36 years, we met in 84, asking myself the same question and just wondering why, why, why on earth? And, and there's any number, of, there's, a, there's a maelstrom of reasons, nothing to do with the quality of the band, why they did not make it after, because I'd, I'd go so far as to say those first three albums were, you know, if not peerless, were, um, or faultless rather, they were just really, no bad tracks on any of the three albums, you know, and and it was just an eternal shame that it just didn't happen for them on a grand scale, but their legacy is astonishing. And I brought it up with Brian earlier about that I, I regarded it as bravery. He saw it as nothing. He, he saw it as no big deal, that they were prepared to go to play these big, massive, epic tracks at a time when all the Nwobin bands were shortening it up and going post-punk. Even ACDC with Highway to Hell were had gone punk in 79. All these bands were doing it shorter and quicker and they were true to themselves and they wrote songs beautifully and if that meant they lasted seven, eight, nine minutes, well, you know what? So be it. You know, the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? I think, yeah, it's a great choice. Yeah, we don't want to repeat too much of what Brian said to us, um, but but it was interesting hearing their songwriting approach where they, they really did just, just sort of glue whole, whole lots of ideas together with a view that they wanted to reproduce the big epics of Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and, and those people that were were his influences. It, it's a fantastic album. The one unfortunate thing I think about this album for me is the production. And obviously, I mean, it was you know very very quickly done, and obviously on a budget. But the the quality of the songs deserved a better sound. But nevertheless, um, let's not take anything away from just just how good it happened. I think the most there, there are a few interesting things for me about this album. One is that when they recorded it, Brian Tatler had only been playing guitar for five years, six years. Here he is at nineteen writing genre-defining songs, um, and he thinks that there's nothing of it. It's uh, amazing. I think the other thing that surprises me about this is that how many songs they had to choose from, and the fact they only put seven on this album because. Spotify has the kind of the, the bonus tracks after Helpless, which closes the, the album. And there's a whole album of equally brilliant songs right there. But Lightning to the Nations for me, which is the opener, which we're listening to now, really sets out this band's store. You know, it's got pace, it's got breaks, it's got, I mean, Sean Harris's lyrics. I mean, there is a man with a checkered past as far as this band is concerned, but my God, he could write. Yeah, he could write lyrics like, you know, like very few other people. And it's just got that kind of relentless riffing going on in the background, but momentarily just stops and it lifts and it kind of goes somewhere else and then comes back. Brilliant song. You touched on it, Mark. It's, it's, there's nothing straightforward about this at all, is there? It's um, and as for Sean Harris, yeah, as a, as, a, as a lyricist, awesome. But vocally as well, I mean, I do love Rasmus Bob Anderson. I, th- I think he's a he's a fine singer. He really is a fine singer, and he's right for the band right now. What happened to Sean Harris is ancient history and all very sad. But ah, oh, his singing, his delivery on on on. On, on all the, all the albums he appeared on, the, the three, well, certainly the, the first three, it just complements. It was just perfect for the band. I absolutely adore his voice. I think it's brilliant. 
and, and Brian said, didn't he, that um, that he was into free and you know Led Zeppelin, and um, and you can tell that you can tell it from the look, you can tell it from the way he sings. Yeah, he's he's very much a kind of a man out of time. But then I think the whole band is a band out of time, in in, in the the best possible way. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I also credit Brian for when they recruited the the well certainly the third singer that they didn't go for a for a Harris sound alike because it wouldn't have worked. Um, this is a unique voice. The other thing that I think is 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 amazing is that I I still have to remind myself even after all these years, I have to remind myself that these were kids. They were 19 years old, writing some of the most sophisticated music. Yeah, whether or not you like this type of music or not, it's kind of irrelevant for me. If you've got any interest in music, you listen to this and you would think it had been written by somebody with many years of kind of songwriting pedigree, you know, who'd... who'd kind of gone through the agony of creation and i suppose to an extent they had because they they'd written a hundred songs by the time they got into to the the studio to record this so they they'd gone through a process without a doubt but they're still 19 i know and we've just listened to the to the opening guitar solo from the prince and i have like you i have to keep pinching myself that he'd been playing that bloody thing for five years his humility is ludicrous because that's that's phenomenal playing for a bloke who's you know just pick the thing up it's an instrument that he's not just mastered i mean he's, t- he's taken it to a really really sky high level Richard, what do you think of the prince it's a, got a very measured pace to it yes it's fast uh but i love the way it just it, it really drives along um and again i think like like the opener so they've obviously put they've obviously put these songs together from lots of ideas but the the fills, the breaks, the changes in tempo, it, 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 it's uh, that's what makes uh, the, the songs on this album so good. But it all fits. It, uh, one, no, no point do you think is there, is there any you know, times there's another songs you listen to. There's a, you know there's a, a tempo change or whatever, and it feels a bit jerky on, on these and on this one in particular. I mean, it's, you know, there's tons of fills and changes and pauses, and and and, and then it. And then just sort of picks itself up again. I mean, a lovely little um, with a little bass feel there. Yeah, good, great fun. Do you? Um, I know what you mentioned earlier, Rich, about production, but does the kind of rustiness of this not give it its charm? In terms of something to be to be fond of, yes. I, I, I've just always felt that at times it sounds like it's been recorded in a bathroom. So yeah, yeah, it, yes, yes, charm, fine. But the, the this. Songs of this caliber deserve to sound better. Gents, can I just take you with just you know while you were talking? We had some jazz funk. This is a band that is just experimenting with everything. Everything, nothing is ruled out. Yeah, let's do a bit of that. See how it sounds. Bung it in. If it doesn't work, we'll take it out and we'll do something else. They're completely inventive, completely innovative, and um, and that bass fill. You know, a baseball by a bassist who didn't know how to play the bass when he joined the band, you know, Colin Kimberley. And I, I just think, you know, it's a perfect storm of of invention and creativity and and a lack of fear, a lack of fear, because this was not, I mean, I, I think it's also worth saying that this is not an album that had been funded by a record company. There was no pressure. There was no pressure to deliver a certain t- type of product. 
there was no kind of financial i mean that there, there was a financial imperative that they couldn't go over a week because of the way in which the the, the record had been funded and you'll have to listen to the special to find out what that's all about but but there was no imperative financially to make a particular record in a particular style. There was no imperative from a record company breathing down their neck saying, you've got to deliver this. It's got to have three hits on it. It's got to turn over 250,000 units. It's got to do that. It's got to do the other. It's got to do whatever. Um, they were just in there making music that they wanted to make for people who wanted to listen to it. And then, of course, we move into the third and final track on side one, which is a nine and a half minute epic on blowjobs i mean i I didn't feel like i could ask brian about this but it's nine and a half minutes as as a piece of music it's astonishing but then you go yeah it's it's all about that's yeah called sucking sucking my love and it's just is that that's what it's about ladies and gentlemen that is basically it's 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 a nine and a half minute odyssey through sean harris getting a blowjob I was trying to work out the tracks that tracks that long tracks that I could listen to for longer than they actually are. And this is this is up there with um oh Ain't No Fun, Waiting Around to Be a Millionaire, which I could listen to for an hour. Um, and obviously Hammerhead by Flotsam and Jetsam. This is another one that is it's nine minutes thirty-five seconds and there's not a second wasted. Just utterly, utterly priceless, you know, that opening riff into that famous hook. Um, and then we're off and motoring, um, but that's just part one of so much greatness going on. And, and I complimented um, Brian on well, there's, I think there's three guitar solos on this. One of them, you just think he didn't see it coming, and there's, there's the second one that just gets me going. He comes in with a little harmonics, and um, and he's just jamming over the top of him on the guitar. Seriously, it's it's a it's an, it is epic. Again, it, it's, just, it's just a great song. I mean, the the riffs that he that uh, that Brian comes up with, I mean, throughout this album, are, are just fantastic. I, I I try to think about your you know the point about he's you know he'd only played guitar for five years. I mean, obviously, any guitarist needs you know practice, practice, practice. But there are these guitarists that are just naturals, aren't they? You know, and I mean, obviously. With my first love, I will put Alex Lifeson in in the same bucket. That actually, they're just they're just gifted, and and I think Brian is an incredibly gifted guitar player. Well, he he did give the impression, didn't he, that with some of his solos, he just carried them on until he realised he'd kind of had enough. And the other thing we've not mentioned, and um, I kind of touched on it earlier, was um, and again, this is probably the production, but Duncan Scott's drumming is so understated. It's so simple just little changes of tempo and nothing big no massive drum rolls to change from this to that it's all really kind of subtle and understated polar opposite to what they've got now um because of course everything about diamond is different in 2020 um but really you know integral part of what they were all about yeah I, and you mentioned you know duncan scott i think um and we'll come on to this but there's there's a point on the second half of the album it's it's on it's electric and i actually think metallica made a dog's breakfast of that i think they lost the essence of that particular track and i think that track is all about duncan scott all about his that double kick um uh, drum beat going through it you know 
I don't know how much. I think you're right. I don't know how much of it is planned. I don't know how much of it is. Yeah, you know, you know, Brian talks about they, they they were kind of working the stuff right up until the point they were recording. So they didn't go into the studio with completed. Well, they went in with completed compositions, but they weren't completely realized compositions. This feels like a long jam, doesn't it? There's there's obviously a structure, clearly a structure to it in terms of how how you know the, 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 there's that. There's that big slow, the, the break in the middle where it slows down, and that is right bang in the middle of the song, of four and a half minutes, right in the middle of the song, and then it, you know, then it, it sort of just then it starts to swoop up again, and obviously is going to slowly come to a climax. So they've certainly had to think about the, you know, maybe the ideal blowjob is nine minutes. I think it's, I think this this song goes on for about nine minutes more than the average blowjob. <laughs> We've obviously asked Brian the wrong questions. But it's, it's also the harmonies in it. And then you've got the kind of this amazing guitar solo running through the end of it. it that, that's just not anything particularly complicated, but just perfect for what's going on underneath it. He could play this blindfolded, couldn't he? I'm, I'm, I mean, bound to be giving him playing it for 40 years. This is why I said you don't want it to end. I just don't want this track to end. This is almost like kind of Neil Sean, isn't it? Guitar work because there's, there's, it's not, it's not dominating. It's just sitting there, carrying this track through to a conclusion. Amazing, amazing song. And then of course we come to the big one, don't we? And the track that at nineteen has effectively invented thrash. Amazing. Am I evil? Which I think Steve features your favourite lyric of all time. It does indeed. It does indeed. I just love the utter simplicity. I mean, it's, the track helps make it. Be honest, but I just love the opening lyric. It's just so spot on. It's just so spot on. You two, when you're doing your favourite lyrics, you're off on arsiness. You're off to arsy planets to find some piece of musical Wordsworth. I'm saying my mother was a witch. I mean, it's, that's, that's you know, and she was burned alive. That's all you need to know. I just think it's, it's again, it's Sean Harris. It's the way he spits out against the drum. Yeah, it's, it is a brilliant, brilliant. The whole song is just breathtakingly brilliant. It really is. And what we learned th- this evening, of course, is that Brian Tatler was working on this right up until the point they hit record. That he hadn't, you know, that this wasn't completed. This wasn't a finished product. Yeah, I, I asked him as well whether he'd ever screwed up those harmonics that lead into the main riff. And um, again, you need to listen to the uh, to the special to find out the answer to that. But um, I've always wondered whether how much pressure there is to get those right. That initial part on the drums, it, it, it reminds me, you know, it's a bit Bonamy in terms of the, the interplay between the bass drum and the snare, and then it just gets into the chug. And then it changes again. I mean, it's just brilliant song. And uh, I was watching um, quite a lot of videos of the band, you know, now, the last couple of years, and they still obviously get a huge kick out of playing this in front of an audience. And why wouldn't you? It's just, you know, you can see, as you said to him, Steve, you know, it must be great watching, you know, 10,000 heads bobbing along this is just a moving track isn't it this gets an audience swaying and moving and, and head banging and to, to be able to see that from the stage must be must fill your heart yeah absolutely uh, and richard you you said it during the week i get 40 years on i don't know how many times i've heard this song i don't know how many times i have played this hundreds 
hundreds of times, I still get goosebumps. Still get goosebumps. Mm. It's an astonishing song. They were 19. It's absolutely fantastic. When I was 19, I could barely get myself out of bed. I could barely make decisions for myself. And these guys are, are sitting in a studio unknowingly creating history. But how do you do that? How do you how do you go into a studio for a week and come out with an album that essentially influences the the entire direction of a of a move a music movement, um, which this did, and maybe that wasn't recognised at the time. Although I think I think in some quarters certainly Am I Evil was recognised as being a game changer. But there are other songs that this band recorded, not just on this album, not not just on the EPs that preceded it, but also on Borrowed Time, also on Canterbury, that that just gave permission for other bands to do different things, I think. This, this reappeared on Borrowed Time, didn't it? Why so? Yeah, because uh, they hadn't... I think when they signed to MCA, which really, you know, the MCA released, recorded and released this um, Borrowed Time, I think the A&R team at didn't he say that the AR team at MCA had kind of come to the conclusion that Am I Evil had appeared on 2,000 pressings of Lightning to the Nations. Very few people outside their immediate fan base knew it. Certainly no one heard it in America. So why not? Why not put it on a on a big global release and get it out to a bigger audience? It would have made sense to re-release this album to a, to a wider audience as, as it is, as they as they formed it, but I, I guess that was that would have been M- MCA's choice. There are all sorts of mistakes, for want of a better word, that were made, I think, in in um, kind of promoting Diamond Head. I, I think I'm right in saying that Peter Mensch offered to manage them, but at the time they were managed by Sean Harris's mum and uh, and this guy... Um, Reg Fellows? Yeah, Reg Fellows, who also produced this album. I know, and I, I don't uh, see any—I don't see any history about him that would suggest he knew how to produce an album. Who knows? Or or maybe part of the deal was that he was credited as producer. Who knows? But but the point was that I think that Linda Harris and Reg Fellows were too close to this to make the right decisions for the band. They had you know um, family members running the the uh, road crew. Um, and, and there was an interview that Brian Tatley gave um, where, where he was describing how I think it was Sean's brother um, was given the job of being the drum tech mission, and they he set up the drums in a line. You know, not in a semi set them up in a line. You can walk along it. <laughs> just, but I mean, I think that gives you an indication of just how fucked up that management was. And that's going to cause friction. That's going to cause friction left, right, and centre, isn't it? But it did suggest that they had massive dreams about this going absolutely sky high. What they wanted to do was they they thought they had some good songs, and uh, they wanted to get them down on record. Yeah, and they managed it. It's electric. Gives way to arguably one of Diamond Head's biggest songs which is helpless. And for me, this, I, I love this song, but it's if I had to rank them in order, this would be seventh. And I just think that that just illustrates how strong this album is. The backbeat to it is just awesome, you know, absolutely awesome. And it is, um, 
you know, it's a firecracker of a finish. It's quick as you like. And then, and and yeah, with with Colin Kimberley's bass going along at 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the stuff you're talking about it is where I'm, it, this is a good example of the production. This isn't necessarily about having a, a drum kit that's belting you through the chest. If this had a, a drum kit produced say, like Bonham's was on the Led Zepp albums, it, it would it would make this so much bigger. I, I I really like this track. I don't for me for me it's not the it wouldn't be the bottom of the seven because I think the 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 speed of it again the the fills the changes it's it, it's pretty complicated. I mean, it's it just yeah, it's just stopping and starting. Uh, I think it's great. Okay, well, let's do highs and lows then. So, Richard, let's start with your low. Probably sweet and innocent. And highs, I love, I love the title track, but Am I Evil is, is just there. It's there. Steve? Well, as, as we've said, there isn't, there isn't a weak point on this album at all, but um, of the, you know, helpless is the, <laughs> it's always churlish to ask. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so that takes it. I love side one. They're all they're all almost ten out of ten jobs. It's just a, it's just a such a powerhouse of a side. But try your hardest. But there's just no escaping the fact that Am I Evil is awesome. I, I've scored It's Electric and Am I Evil exactly the same, and they're both higher than nine point nine for me. And I, I know, you know, I know, I know I'm, I'm kind of, I get quite blinkered about Diamond Head because I, I just think this, they, they changed the way I thought about this music. So they, they're quite an important band for me. Um, uh, so I get a bit blinkered about it, but um, I, I can't, it's hard to get a piece of paper between any of these songs. So, yeah. So the helpless by Nat's whisker would be, Kind of if I if I were taking six tracks to the desert island, I had to leave one behind. Reluctantly, that would be the one. So our our journey back to 1980, um, a glorious year in British rock, has taken in White Snake, Ready and Willing, and Diamond Head, Lightning to the Nations. So one left, and Richard introduced this monster, if you would. Opening album sleeve notes. According to uh, to Mister Ian Kilmister. They're nothing to do with Knob and whatsoever. They're just a rock and roll band. <laughs> if they're a rock and roll band, my mother was a witch and she was burnt alive. Yeah, so this is uh, Ace of Spades. So the fourth album by Motorhead. It was uh, recorded um, between August and September 1980 and uh, released in, in November. We frequently... Uh, we have this phrase when we when we when we hear a track that it just blows our head off. Uh, to which the, uh, the the response is, "Fuck!" I think this probably was the track that uh, I I said that first to when I heard it. But uh, why did I pick this out? Al- this album, oh, I remember buying it when it came out. I've I've loved it ever since. Yes, obviously the title track is brilliant but it's not my favorite track on the album and there are some absolute corkers uh, elsewhere but uh, i mean your memories of of this when it came out boys 
it's all, all about seeing Lemmy on top of the pops doing Ace of Spades. It's not my favourite track either. I'm, it was just, yeah, they talk about thrash metal. These are the the masters of thrash metal. These are the boys who started that genre, as far as I'm concerned. This is just, this is just no nonsense, chitting bricks, fuck off, hard rock. It's and, and it's not rock and roll. You're right. It's not Bill Haley. You can see why punks like it. It's just, it's just a wall of noise with far more. With a, you'll come to the subtleties, I dare say, and there are some. But yeah, it's basically a right good blast. So this is not my favourite Motorhead album. Uh, I think I've got two others that would be ahead of it, but I love it. I mean, I love the album, but it's not my favourite. That, that would absolutely definitely be overkill. This was all about the single. This, uh, and you're right, Steve. Lemmy got sick and tired of playing this. He said that. For two years in concerts, he sang eight of spades and nobody noticed. So, um, and he said, you know, he said he's glad that the band were remembered for that rather than some dreadful, and I quote, dreadful fucking dirge that he wrote. He acknowledges that it had some qualities, but this wasn't a favourite of his. Um, but my God, he owes a lot to it because this was essentially what broke the band commercially, wasn't it? I mean, this is, this is where they really hit the big time. And... Um, yeah, the, so I remember seeing them on top of the pops. I remember going out and buying it as a single. So I had it as a single when it came out. I think it came out before the album did. I loved the single. I, I remember being really angry when it was the highest climber in the chart one week and they they weren't on top of the pops on the Thursday. Um, I remember being really pissed off about that because I, I always had this conspiracy theory that the BBC was completely biased against heavy metal and hard rock and then i think they were on it the next week i think there are better better songs on the album than the title track but i think I, i'm with steve it's just great fun but there's a, such a swagger about about this album i think i think after you know overkill and, and bomber they they went into the studio i mean they that you know it's probably worth it you know, talking quickly about the the producer so vic male who, who had this task of using an expert ear to translate the monstrous live sound and the feel of the band to vinyl. And, and I think I mean, that's one of the things about, I, th I think he succeeded. I think that, yeah, the, it, it's, I don't know, the, the production is I mean, very live and, and, and pretty raw, but not in a bad way, if you know, if you know what I mean. Um, and it, obviously it comes, you know, it, 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 you know, just starting off with, with Lemmy's bass that starts Ace of Spades. Uh, but but it, it's got to be, there's a really good balance of the production between between all of the of the instruments. So yes, it begins with the, the title track. And uh, I mean, Steve, you were saying when we were, we were chatting before this around around overplaying and uh, whether you know it, it tarnishes a song. Discuss. Uh, I still I'll never get tired of this song because uh, it is it it I think it is it is so genre defining um how phil taylor drummed this without breaking his limbs i'll never understand it's really invented speed metal didn't it it's and it's also i mean i, I always regard it as it's kind of lemmy in, in a nutshell whenever you saw lemmy interviewed or in any shape or form, he just looked like a bloke who could not give a fuck about anything or anyone. So that opening lyric, if you like to gamble, I'll tell you I'm your man. Win some, you lose some. It's all the same to me. I couldn't give a fuck. And that was Lemmy through and through. This this song is just a, a motif for him as a human being. 
they were I saw on Wikipedia they were on Tiz was as well doing this as well. Now that must have been um, that must have been quite the morning, quite the Saturday morning that was for those kids. Richard, you said it is genre defining, and and, and I do I, I do tire of it, but not to the extent that I don't still have a massive smile on my face whenever I listen to it. Did I read that? Because Lem, Lemmy loved and has always loved throughout his life fruit machines, and but actually he felt that fruit machines weren't really rock and roll enough, so he changed Ace of Spades to be about a poker game. Yeah, it wouldn't work. Oranges and limes wouldn't work, would it? So, uh... well, I don't tire of this. There was a point at which I'd, it had been overplayed, and um, I'd heard it too too much. There are, there are better. I think there are better tracks on this album than Ace of Spades, personally. But as a as a gateway into a, a period of kind of fairly significant commercial success, I think it it yeah it it took them to a place they hadn't been before. I mean, it's tough, isn't it? Overkill, I think, is such a a more interesting album than this. Um, yeah, you've got kind of the slow stuff of Capricorn and Metropolis and and you know the bouncy stuff of um you know damage case and no class and and then the outright speed of the title track. So there's a lot for me I think if I benchmark it against that then I can I can find all sorts of things wrong with this album. But taken in isolation, the Ace of Spades is is it's a great it is a great track. It is a great track. Uh, and you know, uh, yeah, I haven't tired of it. I I, I, I still sing along to it, and, uh, and and I love the end. Yeah, I love the end of, you know, um, the only card you need, you know, it's going to be the Ace of Spades. It's just a, it's a great, it's a great lyric. As so we moved on to the second track on the album, "Love Me Like a Reptile," and um, we see you asking about some of the subtleties. Um, this track shows Phil Taylor's feel on the drum kit. The, the the play on the hi hat, the little tsk, 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 all the way through. I mean, this is this some you know, it's a subtle, clever drumming, still done at 100 miles an hour though. And I and I, th- I think that this was a great great as a track too because it was a a bit of a taster of what some of the stuff that was to come on this album. So I think yeah. So what what yeah you say, Mark that that you know, like Overkill had had to, you know, quite a lot of variety on it. This this album had just a it was a whole thing had a swagger about it. I really love this second track. So on to track three, shooting in the back, and I I don't know is this a live track? Is it is it a, a ready and willing, you know, um, black and blue kind of hoed out? I don't know what what what's going on. Because you're not really aware of its liveness till the end, are you? It's quite an odd. Hearing this on. We're listening to the deluxe edition on Spotify, and it's completely confusing because I've been listening to this on the old iPod that will have had it from my trusty old Ace of Spades CD, uh, where this track is a studio track. So somehow, for this deluxe edition, uh, they've replaced the studio version with an inferior live version. So I don't quite understand. And Richard, is it inferior? Is it much inferior? It doesn't, doesn't sound like as much can go wrong with this. I mean, it's not. It's not a bad version. The studio version on the original album, it, I think, is a really, really good track. So, I'm sorry, this is yeah, this has spoilt it for you. Dig out your CDs or you put it on vinyl and stick it on. 
I don't think it's spoiled it. I just I don't understand what it's doing here. Back in the studio, we're on, we're on live to win. I don't know if you read some of the the stories about um, about them the, in the uh, the studio, and basically part of the reason I think they you know, got Vic Mile in, in to produce it was not only how he captured them, but but the fact that he in a, in a nice soft spoken tone. Uh, that, that he would actually keep them under control. You read that. So, I mean, Lemmy let, let let said once, apparently, that, that, yeah, Vic was great. He was the first one who told us we were cunts and work harder. He was such a charmer, wasn't he? How does he, how does he rank Rich as a bass player? He's in, I, I put him in that, that bucket of, I mean, not, you know, not an absolute wonderful maestro, but in terms of someone where the bass dro- absolutely drove the band. You know, I, I'd, I'd put him in the in the same bucket as Phil Linnett. Played a Rickenbacker, pretty overdriven through the Marshalls, and and so, so the when when he hit the ba- the ba- hit the bass, I mean it was it's almost percussive as well as providing the 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 you know, the, the the bass notes, um, and it's almost the Phil's drum kit dances over Lemmy's bass as opposed to the other way around. You know what I mean? I was worth saying on "Live to Win." You know, again, I mean, Larry's lyrics on that. You, you know, you know, you can't be hurt. You've got to believe in your star. They'll always treat you like dirt. They can only push you too far. They can't take it away. If they've got something to say, they might try and fence you in. But you've got to live to win. Um, I know. I chose um, uh, James Hetfield as my which rock star do you want to be and the coolest and whatever. And uh, I must have, when I was listening to this album. It reminded me, actually, I could probably replace it with Lemmy. He was completely happy in his own skin, and he didn't give a crap about anything else. You know, I always remember there's a quote from him on um, it was that, that that film, The Decline of Western Civilization, Part Two, where they were asking rock stars, you know, what they what they thought of people that plagiarized their music, and everyone else was, you know, pretty so you know, damn, you know, damning, saying, "No, nah, I." You know, you know, arrest them and string them up and whatever. And uh, Lemmy's response was, well, good luck to them. Maybe they'll do something that we can nick back later. And, and it, 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 so his whole attitude to life um, was, was just was brilliant. I remember that when he was interviewed once in the, must have been the late 90s, and he was asked about bands at the moment that he really liked. And even the most begrudging bastard would have come up with three or four names of bands he would have liked. And he said, "I just don't like any of them." And he said, "And he said the one I can tolerate is Skunk and Nancy." And as we all know, they're shite. That's sorry, that's my words, not his. So clearly, he was just making a point that you know what, I just don't like anything. And I always got that impression with Lemmy. He was just sneering at everything. I just, I, I think Lemmy just took the view that 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 they existed in their own time and space and. That they weren't there to be compared to other bands. They weren't there to be categorised. They weren't there to be judged. I think Lemmy's view was every time he stepped onto a stage, there were two, three, ten, fifty thousand people who vindicated what he did on that stage every night. So why the fuck should he care? So just coming to the end of Fast and Loose, which is a I think yeah solid song, but it course proceeds. The track that is the end of side one, 
And uh, what a track to finish a side the on. Best, best track on this album, in my view. I think it's clever. Lyrically, it's clever. It rocks along. Yeah, it's written about the people who actually made them who they were. I know that all of the stories that Lemmy told about this were that the the crew were moved almost to tears by it. Um, I just think it's it's a fabulous, fabulous track. It, it, it's got so much of a story in it. I mean, like you know, just just another truck stop on the way, another game that I can't play, another word I've learned to say. <laughs> It's just very, very clever. Not taking himself seriously at all. Tongue in cheek. I've got uh, the the dedication because there was a dedication to this on the on the back of uh, back of the album. Uh, we said, "Yeah, we are the road crew." Dedicated to Graham, Ronaldo, Reynolds, Paul Cummings, Ian, the Eagle, Dobby, Steve, Plod, Flood, Dave Chamblin, Phil Ardado, Lawrence, Pete, Steve, the driver, and anyone else who helped, got drunk, humped gear, girls, etc. have a long squawk. You can see why Hawkwind found it too hard to handle, can't you? Well, I, I, I still have to kind of process the fact that Lemmy was in Hawkwind. <laughs> yeah. I, I find that just the biggest disconnect of all. Un- unsurprisingly, an episode that ended in a Canadian jail or something, wasn't it? Side two opens with fire, fire, back to our... Side one, track two being important. I don't think they chose the strongest track to, to open the second side of this album. Again, I mean, it's it's driving, it's fast, but there's not, for me, anything particularly interesting about it. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a typical Motorhead song, isn't it? It's um, throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, at it. So we're now on to, where are we now? Track eight and Jail Bait. On the heels of uh, Mr. Coverdale's uh, dodgy lyrics, we've got uh, a a track that starts off with, Hey, baby, you're a sweet young thing, still tied to mummy's apron strings. I don't even dare to ask your age. (laughs) I only need to know you're here backstage. So this is Damage Case redone. Yeah, I know what you mean. Even down to some of the lyrics. So now on to dance, which I think I think is the probably the poppiest. At least it starts with the uh, pop, poppiest track on on the album. Um, which I, yeah, I, I quite I, I like dance. I like uh, I mean, again, some like with some of the tracks, some love like a reptile. Some of the, uh, the use of percussion, outhead percussion. So yes, I, I, I like do like this song. I just love the fact they've written a song called Dance. I, uh, yeah, I think it's a brilliant track. It just, it just, yeah, bounces along. Yeah, there's nothing to dislike here, is there? Perhaps this is this is them becoming, this is them being rock and roll. Perhaps that's uh, that's the point, isn't it? Well, yeah, and you can hear it. You can hear it in two or three tracks, definitely. Just normally too quick to appreciate. I mean, it's fascinating hearing about Lemmy, and I mean, because he 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 really personally, he really did love rock and roll. Absolutely adored Little Richard. Perhaps in in his, in his mind, that's what he's playing through a distorted Rickenbacker bass and a stack of Marshalls. Yeah, only needs a bit of piano, and we're there. We talk a lot of you know, some of the previous albums we've reviewed about the album running out of steam 
and kind of just tailing off towards the end. But I, for me, this is a really interesting album in the way that it, I, it's got a weak start to side two, and then it sort of improves, you know, once dance comes on. And then for then these final three tracks, it, it gets back to its best with with the first the first the the, the three to finish the album being um, being bite the bullet, which is just classic fast motet, and uh, and it and it proceeds well. Let's talk about the track it precedes in a in a minute. Yeah, well, we better hurry up because how they can get a full track into one minute 38 seconds sorry dance was too long we need to shorten this bitch up so we'll do one in one thirty-eight. you're thinking right well obviously they're going to compromise on something but no it's got the full works well no when they no see what you've missed steve is when they originally did this hurry up when, hurry up no if, when they first did it it was eight minutes long so what they did is they went vic can you just put this on 45 mate <laughs> there we go. Suddenly we've got a one minute 38. Okay, here we go. Come on, gush, you two. Yeah, the best track on the album, in my view. It's absolutely brilliant. Talk about swagger, attitude. Well, you know, I've, I've, I've raved about this before on Sad Nights. Um, but, oh, this is brilliant. Chase is better than the catch. Brilliant. You know, what they, you know what they do with this track? It's it's template Motorhead. Of course, it is. Everything about it is what Motorhead do. But they let this breathe a little bit as well as the track goes on, which is just such an unusual thing with them. They're not they're not just going to blow you away by speed with this. They actually think you know. I say they think the track through. That's so dismissive of what they do anyway. But they really do with this one. They really, really, really find a hook that's fantastic, and um, and the track's allowed to evolve. And that just doesn't happen very often. I mean, this, this, this I've again, scored this equally with um, We Are The Road Crew, and it's uh, and, it, and they're both higher than 9.9, so. Wow, you've had quite the week, haven't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely adore this track. I, I, I like Road Crew because I think it's clever, but this, I mean, it's, it's impossible not to move to this. Uh, just incredibly well crafted. This song, again, as, as Steve says, the space is the, the, the this bit in the middle slowing down, um, just the bass, the the guitar, and then it just the whole thing picks up again. Yeah, I mean, you can you, you can you can imagine it, can't you? Um, Lemmy going, um, so little girl, would you like to come back to my house and see some Nazi memorabilia? Oh, I've got a full full German uniform in the wardrobe. This is just. Fabulous. So, you know, you've got you've got at least two tracks on this album that are better than the title track. You've got three, and we've just arrived at it. I did say at least two. This is rock and roll, motorhead style, isn't it? It's just played at 190 miles an hour. Elvis, it ain't. I I, I think it's this is rock and roll. No one else had done this, had they? No one else had done music this heavy and fast. And I think you could, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, how we pick these uh, light into the nations and 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 uh, this one, uh, Ace of Spades tonight, because actually, I mean, the, the, these are the founding pillars of Metallica and thrash metal. Yeah, and I think I think Brian's absolutely right. You know, when he said that that if Diamond Head contributed anything, it was to allow 
the Metallicas and Anthraxes and Megadeths of the world to write longer songs. That was their contribution. He feels that was their contribution. Arguably, you can look at some Metallica stuff, particularly off the the most recent albums, but also, you know, quite a lot of Justice, which is, you know, horribly overblown. But, yeah, I think you're right, Rich. I think, you know, Motorhead, Diamond Head um, are the, you know, they are the cornerstones of, of, of Thrash. Highs and lows for Motorhead, Ace of Spades. Uh, not a particular fan of Shoot You in the Back or Fire Fire. Probably Fire Fire is the weakest, I would think. But they're hard to compare because they're all kind of quite similar. Um, and I do love the hammer. I absolutely adore the hammer. But um, I think the chase is better than the catch is my height. Well, I know it is. That's 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 the track for me. Okay. So uh, I'd agree with you. Fire Fire is... Um... Is the walk track on the album, uh, which is a shame because it's the track that opens side two, and I can't get a piece of paper between We Are the Road Crew and The Chase is Better Than the Catch. So I score them equally. They are jointly my favourite tracks on the album. Yeah, no, um, I'm with uh, with Steve in terms of Fire Fire being the weakest and. Um, the chase is is just uh, monumental. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. Okay, so there we are. That's all three albums done. Diamond Heads, uh, Lightning to the Nations, Ready and Willing from Whitesnake, and Motorhead's album, classic album, Ace of Spades. I guess all that's left now is to rate them and then rank them. Reviews complete initializing rating process let's start with the first album we listened to which was uh diamond heads lightning to the nations let's go through the album scores shall we see where that's ended up i I don't give out many tens but i gave out a couple uh on this one and it Overall, it's a it's a pretty high scoring album. So, Steve, let's start with you. What did you give to Lightning to the Nations as an overall album score? My overall album score was eight point oh seven one four three, with um, yeah, a couple of nine point fives in there with the sucking my love and am I evil? Okay, Richard, I give it an eight point two one and a bit. I rolled out another ten for am I evil just because it's so good, uh, Lighting to the Nations, a nine. And, yeah, it couldn't give a low score to any of these tracks. A fantastic album. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had two that were a whisker under eight, but the rest of them were all solid. Eights, nines, and um, two tens for me, Am I Evil? And It's Electric to give an overall average album score of 8.81429, which gives the album as a whole an average score to take into the hall of fame with 8.36667 which is a in the context of this is a massive score isn't it it was never going to be anything less much less than a nine uh, overall for me but um yeah i mean we've, we've all consistently scored that really high so okay let's uh, let's move on then to um ready and willing so a very different obviously a very different album very different sound very different approach um to diamond head i scored this overall I mean, i'm really surprised actually to, to find that i scored this 
higher than you two, I think. Um, so I gave it an average score. Of, well, it was a it was a Nats bollock under eight. Uh, it came in for me at seven point nine six 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 seven. So Richard, uh, a seven point six recurring, I would imagine. And yeah, outstanding track for me as as we discussed earlier is uh, is a blind man ain't gonna cry. Obviously, hot on its heels. But then Love Man and Black and Blue for me were the two that uh, pulled it down a little. But still, yeah. I just, yeah, still a brilliant album. And Steve, this is the one you brought to the party. What did you score it? Um, 7.72 and lots more twos. In actual fact, there's very little between the three of us, isn't there? And um, if there's one takeaway from this, it's that the last track on side one, Blind Man, the first track on side two, Ain't Gonna Cry No More, uh, made the album in terms of scores. All of us scored over nine for each of those tracks and averages, you know, 9.2, 9.3. And that tracks, you know, very good album. I'm just slightly, I can't believe I gave Fool for Your Loving 6.5. I shall have to talk to myself long and hard about that. But uh, there you go. You gave Fool for Your Loving the same score as Black and Blue. I'm sorry, Fool, Fool for Your Loving is far better than Jazz and Dave. <laughs> yeah. so let's go on to the noise meisters themselves all of these albums of course from 1980 and ace of spades which effectively was the uh was the album that turned motorhead into um a sort of a huge commercial juggernaut wasn't it steve where where did you get to with ace of spades um not the same place as you two that's that's all I would say, but I, I knew that was going to happen because I'm not quite the, the Lemmy fan that you two are, but I gave it a perfectly respectable 6.83. Um, the standout tracks were, yeah, as we as we discussed eagerly last time round, um, The Chase is Better Than The Catch and We Are The Road Crew. Good songs, but uh, I think you've got them more great than good. So mine, uh, again, a couple of tens on this album. We are the road crew and the chase is better than the catch. I think if I had to choose between them, two of them, as I said earlier on, it would be we are the road crew. Um, but I gave it an average overall score of 7.91. There are sort of bits and pieces after the decimal point, but round it up, 7.9, uh, sorry, 7.9. Richard? Yeah, it's uh, seven and three quarters uh, for me. And yeah, like, like you, standout tracks of the, the Chase and Road Crew. The Chase, I, I gave a 10. Road Crew, nine. L- love the Road Crew, but the Chase, chase is about in the catch. It's just one of those unique, brilliant tracks in in my view. As, I think as we talked about, the, the sort of start of side two for me was the, the weakest bit. Uh, and then it warms up again a bit towards the end. Yeah, ha- happy with where that sits. Yeah, so that got an overall album score of 7.49, 7.5, you know, near as damn it. And, yeah, I mean, it just, again, reinforces that, you know, that, that sag in the middle of side two, once you're scoring sort of low sixes or mid sixes, that's that's kind of that's kind of the top 10 done, I would think. Uh, you know, it's, it's not going to make the top 10 for that, but um, let's head over to the Hall of Fame and see exactly where they did end up. It's time to put The Rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so in the Hall of Fame, all three of these did get into the top 20, gents. Ace of Spades came in at number 19, just ever so marginally above balls to, balls to the wall, a, a tiny, tiny amount behind Flotsam and Jetsam. 
So that, that, that there's an interesting pairing. Ready and Willing uh, came in at uh, number 13. I'm not sure if that's a, 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 an oblique reference to uh, to some of uh, Coverdale's lyrics again. And Lightning to the Nations, wow. As we said, it, it got a big score and it's uh, it's broken into the, the top three. So it's not Thunder and Lightning down to, I think, Lizzie down to fourth place. And it's sitting there proudly below Machine Head and Led Zepp 4. So what do you think of that, guys? Well, I think I think Brian Tatler's going to be um, happy to see his album sitting, what, 0.1 of a score, 0.1 of a point behind one of his favourite albums, Machine Head. So, um, yeah, but I just think, personally, I, I I think that's that's right. That's It deserves to be there. You know, it was a... It was an absolutely genre-defining album, and um, yeah, without as as Lars Ulrich has said publicly, Brian Tatler is too modest, I think, to um, to to kind of uh, accept the credit. But you know, I, I, I'm fairly convinced that without Diamond Head, we wouldn't have Metallica, or at least not as we know it. Steve, yeah, no, just it proves the point that um, I mean, you get a sense, don't you, from what we know about each other. We know we love Diamond Head, and um, we've you know long grown up on them. But it makes the point that to get anywhere those kind of dizzy heights of eight point three and eight point four, you cannot mess up. You know, there's the one t- one tiny error on an album um, is gonna is gonna pull you down. And um, you know they didn't do it. Most the benefit of just putting seven tracks on an album. But um, there's a lesson for us all. But yeah, it was um, no no surprise with that at all. And you know, it's to, to get over eight, that's nine bands now over eight, nine albums over eight. So, you know, things are getting there. But um, Zeppelin Four still looks close to untouchable, doesn't it? Well, yeah. And maybe until, I mean, it's always only ever until next week, isn't it? It's always only ever until next week. But, yeah, I just, I, there's, there's part of me that looks at this and thinks, so the very best album, or the, the album that many critics would say is the greatest rock and roll album ever made only scores 8.5 you know what i mean it's just crazy <laughs> in a way we're but, a tough, um, tough jury mark we are and, and but that's the joy of it isn't it and um, there'll be people listening to this who think we're absolutely bonkers but um but that's fine um you know uh and as we always say you know if if you disagree with the hall of fame you disagree with the scores uh, the scores are all on the, the Hall of Fame on the website and all of our blogs and the Hall of Fame page is all open for comments. So if you disagree and you want to give it your own score, head over there and drop us a line. Keep it clean. Keep it civil. Uh, in the end, it's all subjective. But I think for Lightning to the Nations, we need to give them this tribute. Confirming top 10 status. Right, so we move on next week, episode 12, and our three albums that are coming under the uh, Enter Sad Men scrutiny are, well, take a listen to this. Well, number one is obviously Physical Graffiti. Yep, no, no great chore doing that one. No, it's awesome. Let There Be Rock. Excellent. And <laughs> ACDC fan. And then Sad Wings of Destiny which is a brilliant album. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the voice of Diamond Head guitarist and founder, Mr. Brian Tatler, uh, whose company we had the pleasure of very recently, recorded a show with. Top bloke, um, lovely fella. 
had a great hour or so in his company, and God bless him, he went through his own Hall of Fame with us as well. Not that those three albums are on it. He said at the end of it, boys, the show's mine. I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you what to do on episode 12. Here are three albums, three albums that I love, three albums for you to go review. Um, and that's what we've done. So we are looking at, as he says, Sad Wings of Destiny by Priest, Physical Graffiti by Zeppelin, and uh, Let There Be Rock by ACDC. So, yeah, none of us have chosen these. I dare say they would have come across our radar at some point over the future. Um, and we're looking forward to it. Thanks again to Brian to uh, for, for you know, being part of a great show, giving us this to do. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.